You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. A picture's going to come up on the screen, and I want to just say a number, and I want you to tell me what you think about it. Um, $80,000. It's a big number, right? $80,000. So what you're looking at right now is an $80,000 view. Um, This is the view from the summit of Mount Everest. So there are people that will pay $80,000 to take a summit trip up to Mount Everest. And this isn't just a little weekend excursion where you hop in your Subaru and drive on up almost to the peak and then go up there and take a quick photo. But rather, this is also three months of toil and danger. Three months where you'll go over and you'll summit camp after camp after camp as you make a progression up to see the summit of Mount Everest. Not only that, if you are so lucky to make it to the summit of Mount Everest, you get about 15 minutes to be there. 15 minutes to experience this view. 15 minutes to soak it in. 15 minutes. $80,000 for 15 minutes of beauty. It's amazing the lengths we'll go to to experience beauty. There are vacations we take to lakes, to beaches, to canyons, to places of beauty, to soak them in. There's something altogether about who we are, about what our souls are made for, that we crave and long for beauty, that we need it. And that's so telling about who we are and who the God of the universe is that he's made us that way. In fact, think about yourself. Think about how you prioritize even your life and your spending, what really drives you, what really motivates you. Uh, One of the occupational privileges of being a pastor is that you often find yourself doing weddings. And in those moments, what you see when the bride begins to walk down the aisle is obviously a groom soaking in the beauty of his bride. He doesn't have to be told in that moment a whole bunch of logical propositions about how he should be feeling in that moment. He's not filled with information of cognitive type, but rather there's a sense and an experience of beauty that's altogether moving. Or think about the first time you held your newborn child, how that moved you, how that transformed you, how that transfixed you, that moment of beauty of seeing their face that kicks in an altogether new way of living and being and existing because of the beauty that you are experiencing. And we're wired this way. There's something about the human heart, whether it's an art show, a museum, a movie, a song, an experience where we crave and we long for beauty. We long for it, we need it, we are made for it. And this Psalm introduces us to the deepest of deeps of beauty. And what beauty tells us about who we are and how we relate even to God. It starts off in verse one. This is what David says. David says some incredible things and he's not being hyperbolic, but he says this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, you can't help but think for a second, especially if you know the context in which David is writing this. I mean, he's writing this out of the story of 1 Samuel chapter 21, where he's pretending to be crazy to get out of a jam. Like his life is that jammed up where he's feigning being a wacko. Have you ever had that kind of day? Have you ever been in that kind of trouble where you have to pretend to be crazy? I mean, I'm sure your work is hard, but it's not that hard. 
I'm sure being a parent is hard, but it's not, I don't know, parenting's another level. Maybe you have to pretend to be crazy just to get a moment alone. Whatever, but that's where David's at. But yet he's still saying this phrase, it's altogether unique. And it's like, David, do you really mean that? At all times, all times just sticks out to me, really? I really wanna go, really, David, at all times? David, are you aware of life? Are you aware of how life plays out? And there's, there's, this, there's this temptation of my heart to begin to read that too when I see that all times and think of this as a, as a burdensome command, as if it's obligatory, as if it's a, a, someone walking around, God's walking around with a, a clipboard like a drill sergeant saying, bless him, do it. It's been two hours. Bless the Lord. You haven't blessed your quota. Start blessing. And it's drudgery. But this is, not the, this is not the tone. This is not what, what the psalm is conveying to us, but rather it's one of exuberance. David is exploding with joy. It's this joy that's driving him to want to bless the name of the Lord. This is a man who's become entrenched, entrenched with the goodness and the greatness and the beauty of God He's seen something incredible and out of experiencing something incredible, he's pouring out a desire for others to experience it as well. We are desiring worshiping beings, that which we love, that which we savor, that which we enjoy, we bring glory to, we bring fame to, we bring renown to. Um, When my wife and I first moved to Texas a couple years ago, we started to make it our, 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 our mission to find the very best barbecue place um, in the DFW area. And so every Monday we were going and trying a different one. And you can argue with me, but you'd be wrong. But the best one in all of DFW is this place called Heim Barbecue up in Fort Worth. And I absolutely love it. I love it so much that I, 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 I kind of glory in it. I enjoy it. And that enjoyment has spilled out that when friends and family come into town, I can't wait to take them there. I can't wait to say, you've got to try the bacon burnt ends. They're just incredible. They'll blow your mind. Have you ever even heard of such a thing? Can you believe that the world has such a thing as bacon burnt ends? And their brisket, it's not the bad brisket that's dry and lean. No one wants that. It's the good brisket, you know, the fatty and moist brisket. The the brisket where you've eaten too many pieces just because it's so good. And I, I love that. And a couple months ago, I discovered that one of my friends up in Fort Worth, he works at a church up there, that he lives two blocks from Heim Barbecue. And he had never heard of Heim Barbecue. And my mind was just like blown. I was like, this is, this is a travesty. It has to be rectified immediately. You've got to come and savor and enjoy and experience the glory of Heim Barbecue. And so I couldn't wait to introduce him to that. And now every time he goes there, because I mean, he's a good person. He goes there all the time because he lives within two blocks and he takes new family and friends and people from church. He'll send me a picture. And so the joy cycle continues. I enjoyed it and I passed that on. I savor and I'm, I'm exuberant about it. And now he's savored it and he's exuberant. And he's passing it on. And this is the transformation. And, and, and not to go too far, I appreciate you going with me a little bit, not to go too far on barbecue, but God is infinitely more enjoyable than any of the gifts of this world. And all those gifts always point back to the giver, don't they? Just like when you receive a present and kids, you know, this is the funny thing about kids on Christmas morning. You always want to tell them like, hey, look at the card. Who's it from? And they're just trying to tear it open, you know? And and sometimes we go through life that same way. We just want to tear open all the gifts. And the posture of David here is don't just tear open the gifts of life, but pause and look at the beauty and the character 
and the wonder of the one who gives you the gifts. That's what worship does, is it makes our hearts grateful. It cultivates a spirit of wonder and amazement that the Lord would be so good to us. Once again, knowing David's story, and David has such a complex story, he is not immune from the troubles of life. He is not writing this in a vacuum for where everything has gone well for him. In fact, you see this in verse four. This is what David says, for all my fears. He delivered me from all my fears. David is wrestling with real fears. And in verse six, he says all of his troubles. David is wrestling with real troubles. David would face sins of his own doing and sins done against him. Family members betraying him. He would face armies coming against him. He would face trial and obstacle time and time again. The Psalm also tells us in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So even the psalm contains the texture and the feel and the reality that there are real fears in this world, that there are real afflictions. As verse 19 says, it even says for those who are righteous, for those who are still trying to walk with the Lord, for those who really want to do good, you're still going to face afflictions. So here you are, real fears, real troubles, real brokenheartedness, real crushed spirit. It's not like this psalm is written without those things in mind. It's evident. It's right there in the text. And I know a lot of us, I mean, this room is big enough where some of you are walking in here this morning where you have real troubles in your marriage, where marriage has gone a different way than you ever anticipated, where it's tense, where it's tenuous, where it's hanging on by a thread. There's real fears there. There's real troubles. Some of you are in the throes of that for parenting, Dealing with a child who seems to be going off the rails or frustrated or not sure what to do next. There's real troubles there. Some of you have been betrayed and abandoned and rejected by those closest to you. Those are real fears and those are real troubles and those are real crushed spirits. Some of you are dealing with major health issues. I mean, just this week alone, I know of people in our church community that are are dealing with some major life-threatening illnesses. And finances weigh heavily on all of us in many ways. Real troubles and real fears. David continues to intensify, though, just how gritty this psalm is, though, by ratcheting up even more of saying this all times, this all times also has to include a command that's prevalent all throughout this psalm, which is to fear God. He's almost making things worse. Not only do I have troubles, not only do I have afflictions, but now I'm to fear God as well. I'm to fear him. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. So there's a command of fear. Then he picks it up in verse 11. He says, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, David, teach us. And he does just that in verses 12 through 14. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. How'd you do with that this week? Did you have any moments of grumbling, of murmuring, of complaining? Did you tell a story to a coworker or a spouse or a friend that slanted it in your favor? Did you practice deceit in the way you spoke of others, especially those who are hard to love? Were your words used to build up life and encouragement or were they used to tear down and destroy? How'd you do with that this week? Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay, 
This is one maybe we feel like we did all right with. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace. I didn't start any wars this week. I didn't kill anybody, so maybe I did that one. No, that's not the point. The word peace here is the fullness of human life. What God intended the world to be. Living in accordance with all of God's statues. This word peace there is the the Hebrew word shalom, which means living in complete congruence and harmony with all of the statues that God lays out for us. And that means often our sins of omission along with our sins of commission. So not only the things we did that we shouldn't have done, but the things that we didn't do that we should have done. This is such a broad bucket that when you look at it, when you pause, when you step back, you begin to say, no, I failed. I'm not near living up to that. If that's what it looks like to fear the Lord, then I better be in fear of the Lord. And even if you're a non-Christian, let me just say this. Think about this for a second. Even if you look in the go, well, that's not my standard. All of us are so inconsistent, we don't even live up to our own standard. Even your very best ideals, even what you would measure as a good person, you didn't live up to it this week. So not only do we not live up to God's standard, we don't even live up to our standard. We're condemned for this sense of judgment based on even our own standard. It was... The summer of 1993, and I was playing junior high football, which is an exciting time of life, I guess. Um, but I was playing junior high football, starting out about this time of year, going to training camp, and I was kind of smug and I had a smart mouth and would often say things I shouldn't have said and get me in trouble. There was one coach, I had not met him before, but he was gonna be the defensive coach, and I was playing defense, and he was wearing those ridiculous like polyester bike shorts that you know PE teachers used to always wear. And first thing out of my mouth when I met him was to make a wisecrack about his shorts. And I regretted that for a very long time. For the next two years, Coach Klein would stand in opposition to me. Coach Klein had it out for me. He would see me do one drill wrong and I would run twice as much as everyone else. He would make me carry gear while everyone else got a water break. And I felt the eyes of Coach Klein constantly upon me. I knew his opposition was there for me. He would often remind me of that first encounter and how, was, how I was gonna pay for it. I felt he was opposing me. And I think some of us walk around with a similar posture and attitude toward God. God's in opposition to me. I should fear God because I have not done the things that I'm supposed to do. I didn't do the things that I should have done. I know that God is holy. I know that he is just. I know that he is all powerful. And I know that he's in opposition to me. He's walking around with a clipboard and he can't wait to ding me. And it feels that way. We walk through life really feeling that way. All this seems to, in some ways, create such a paradox. And a paradox means two things that that it's hard to understand how they're both true. At first, they feel like they can't be, but they are. Because here's God saying, at all times, praise me, seek me, draw near, I'm your refuge, and then fear me. And what do you do with these things? Does it seem like a cruel joke to you? There's a paradox there. Paradox, once again, two things at first that might seem like they can't be true, but at deeper wrestling and understanding, you begin to see how they both are. You see how they begin to connect. I was talking with a a friend recently here at church and uh, she was mentioning to me that it's so hard for her to draw near to God, to enjoy Jesus as the language we often use around here at Stonegate because when she thinks of God, she thinks of how her life has gone relatively well. 
that there hasn't been major illnesses, that she didn't grow up in dysfunction, that finances are working out, that her kids are doing relatively well. And for her, when she thinks of God, she's wondering when's the other shoe gonna drop? It can't continue. Eventually God's gonna come and ask for his due. Eventually it's gonna be my turn. So what does that do? If that's your constant posture, if there's one of anxiety, how could you really begin to get close to God if you're always worrying about the other shoe about to drop? What does this do to someone's life? What does it do to our posture? There's no way we could ever bend to want to give our lives away. There's no way we could ever say, Lord, I want to be generous. I want to serve. I want to worship. When we wonder about God coming and snatching the things that we love the most. I read a quote by uh, Einstein this week and he said the most terrifying, and this was him after studying physics for years and years and looking at the world around him. He said, the most terrifying thought and conclusion I've come to is that the human soul must come to terms that the universe is opposed to it. Einstein was, I think, almost there. The most terrifying thought for the human soul is that God is opposed to them. And what happens when we live that way? And even for you, Christian, you don't get off the hook because even for you, Christian, we still sometimes have this tendency, our heart of hearts, to deceive us and lie to us that this gospel is really just almost this loophole and too good to be true. And we live and move and have our being as if God is an angry junior high football coach with a clipboard waiting to oppose us. So it leaves us with that pure paradox. How do we fear and enjoy God? How do I know? How do I, this is great. You're preaching, Ryan. All that stuff you're saying sounds great, but how do I know that God really is not opposed to me? How do I know? Verse 19 and 20, look at this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Does that sound familiar to you? The gospel writers, the gospel writers pick up on this verse. Jesus of Nazareth, who comes to this world to live a humble life, a life that you and I could not live, a perfect life in our place, And then he goes to the cross. We see the life of Jesus slow down. We see the crucifixion begin to take place as he carries his cross. And as he's laid down and nailed to that cross and nails go through his his wrists and his ankles and he hangs there on a cross embarrassed and humiliated and mocked and absorbing all the opposition of God all the opposition that God could ever have for you who are in Christ Jesus is absorbed by Jesus as he hangs on that cross. And he dies relatively quickly. So much so that the Roman soldiers who are ready to get home, they come by and usually their practice would be be to break the legs of those who were still alive so they could no longer push themselves up on the cross to gasp for another breath of air. But Jesus had already passed And so he was spared that moment of having a bone broken. This Psalm right here, verse 20, is already a prophecy. It's a reminder of the Savior, of the King that is to come to demonstrate once and for all with perfect beauty and majesty and wonder that God is for you. God is so for you that he would die for you. 
God is so for you that he would take all the opposition of God that rightfully belongs upon you and place it upon his son, Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As much as you may try, as much as your heart may lie to you, you could try the rest of your life to shake out any more wrath that God would have for you and you would find that cup to be empty. There is no more wrath. There is no more condemnation to be poured out upon those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the definitive declaration that God does not stand in opposition for those who are in Christ Jesus, that God is for you. That's how you know. And this is not a backup plan. This was not a fail safe. This was not like, man, humanity really went off the rails. I guess I better intervene and come up with something. In fact, Ephesians 2 says this was God's perfect plan from all eternity past. This was always the plan. Even as Psalm 34 verse 20 is being written, God knew all of this. He had it all in mind. He intended all of this for this moment of glory, for this moment of majesty and beauty of Christ hung on a tree to take all the opposition of God on behalf of you and me. <laughs> That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that what it, that does, as Ephesians 1 tells us, is it pours out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for us. That's the God that you and I serve. That's the God that you and I worship. That's the God who is worthy of being blessed and praised at all times. So now can I turn to the, the heart of this psalm and we skipped over it intentionally. Probably the one that's uh, evoked the most worship songs, which I had a number of them stuck in my, my head all week, which was, which was fun, uh, is verse eight. Because when we begin to see, when we really begin to grasp, when our eyes are opened that God is not opposed to us, that God is for us, that God is both holy and one to take refuge in, that, that, that we begin to see the beauty and the majesty and the renown of God. And that opens our hearts and it opens our lives that regardless of circumstances, of real troubles, of real fears, of real afflictions, I can bless the Lord at all times, that I can magnify his name because his presence, because his person is worth everything. Here's what David says in the midst of those real fears, those real troubles and that call to fear the Lord. Here is what he says. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We could spend the rest of our lives just camping out on this. The rest of our lives. There's that much here. Jonathan Edwards, uh, considered by some to be the greatest theologian in American history, incredible uh, scholar and writer and pastor and preacher, he found himself in a historical moment where there was great revival breaking out, where you know, people in mass were coming to Christ, people that were far from God were turning from their sins and they were hearing the gospel and they were coming to church. And even those who thought they were Christians were truly being regenerated and converted and they were meeting Jesus. And as him and Whitfield and other contemporaries were preaching that this revival was taking place, uh, Edwards, who was, was quite a particular fellow and, and, and loved doctrine, he began to ask himself and he fleshed out in a sermon one time the question of, well, how, what's the distinction? How do we know what is, is legitimate here and what's not legitimate? What's euphoria and excitement? And what is true regeneration where this person has been born again and the Lord has truly done something in their life? And so you had this sermon where he teased out this idea. 
And the way he phrased it, almost to think about it this way, if we were to divide the room here between the, the professors over here, and not professors like in the, the college sense, teaching sense, but those who would profess, and then the beholders. So he, he made this contrast between the professors and the beholders. And this is how he broke it down. It's saying the professors are those who know about God and find him useful. And the beholders are those who know God and find him beautiful. Those who find God useful and those who find God beautiful. And, and you can't miss this, friends, all of the difference in the world. It's a Grand Canyon-sized difference between the professor and the beholder. And the real tricky thing, the real dangerous thing, is they both look exactly the same from the outside. See, even the demons, as James 2 tells us, even the demons believe they have great theology. They could profess along with some of our doctrinal statements about who God is. They know God. They know who he is. They just don't find him beautiful. They don't love God. They don't want God. So this is what it is. I mean, think about it. Here's a couple things. I just want to list them out for you. Both the professors and the beholders would read scripture, but one would read scripture for answers and the other one would read scripture to encounter the living God. They both pray. The professor would pray out of routine and the beholders would pray to relate, to experience God, to magnify him, to taste him. They both maybe even give. One gives is a form of almost like this, this tax to keep God off my back or it's the right thing for me to do. And the beholders say, I, I can't help but open up my life and my wallet and all that I have because I look at the generosity that God gave all that he had. And they both gather. Maybe they show up to home group and the posture of the, the professor is, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. And the other one goes with this eager anticipation, even if it's messy and awkward and clunky and weird, of I'm here to see Christ formed in you and in me. So they're doing the same thing, same activities, but the motivation is altogether different. You know, it's fascinating for me. I, I used to have this uh, buddy of mine in Seattle that we'd get together. Uh, he was an atheist and we'd just have conversations about God. And one of his big hangups was often, don't you think it's exclusive when you say that people who don't love Jesus don't get to go to heaven? And I always found this to be the weirdest question because in some ways underneath that is the assumption that heaven is this five-star resort, awesome club med type vacation. But what heaven is, is it's the full manifested presence of Jesus Christ where you and I who love him, who just want more and more and more of God get to see him face to face. Jesus, my whole life, I've wanted to see you. I've wanted to touch you. I've wanted more of you. I long for you. I want to magnify you. And so I would tell him, I'd say, it's like saying, I hate Mickey Mouse, but they won't let me into Disneyland. <laughs> if you don't like Mickey Mouse, like you're not going to enjoy Disneyland because all Disneyland is is just Mickey Mouse all the time. If you don't like Jesus, heaven would actually be hellish. Because all heaven is, is Jesus all the time. And if you're a beholder, if you look and find yourself entranced by the cosmic God that we worship in a sense of wonder and awe, this, this enthralls your heart. And it changes the way you read the Bible, the way you pray, the way you give, the way you gather, the way you give yourself away. 
You and I as worshiping creatures, we will not worship someone unless we have experientially enjoyed them. You cannot worship God until you've experientially enjoyed him. And that's what David's getting at. And I just want to throw this out to parents. Think about this in this room for, this, for a moment. Your kids, they are way more influenced by what you take joy in than what you tell them. If you want to move the needle in their little souls, let them see you enjoy Jesus. You can go through all of the Bible material, but if they don't see you enjoy Jesus, they'll find what you really do enjoy. And I'm not against youth sports. I'm not against school accomplishments. I'm not against family activities. But if that is where your family resonates all their joy in, your kids will grow up discipled in that fashion. Your kids need to see you enjoy Jesus. So how about it for you? These are just questions for all of us to ask ourselves so that we're being honest this morning. Do you love God? Would you want more of God, even if it means you have to walk through the shadow of death? What if famine and sorrow might be your friends all of your days? What if your kids won't turn out the way you want and your career goes no further? Will you still behold God? Is he enough? Or when you look at the future, Would you rather have answers to the questions that confound you or is the presence of God enough in the meantime? Jesus, one of his shortest and I think most powerful parables is in Matthew 13 where he speaks of just selling it all for a treasure that's buried in a field. What he's basically telling us there is that unless God is your treasure, unless God is more than enough, unless you're able to come to a place in your soul where you say, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away, my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what it looks like to be a beholder versus a professor. We have an all-satisfying savior of our souls that fills up every parched and thirsty place of our hearts. Because of this beauty, because of this goodness, because of this wonder, you and I get to encounter God. We get to magnify his name. Don't just be someone who sees that, professes that, but be someone who tastes that and beholds that. Your soul will be satisfied with nothing less. It's what you're made for. And here's the best part about it all. God's offering that to you. For you who are a Christian, today is a a day once again to turn and lift holy hands and worship and behold the goodness of God and to magnify his name. And for those of you who are not yet Christians, who are far from God, today's a day for you to know that God doesn't stand in opposition for you when you repent and turn of your sins and choose to behold his goodness and his beauty that we see demonstrated of Christ hung on a tree on our behalf. And in that is new life. And how do we know that? Because Jesus did not stay in the grave, but he got out of the grave and he rules over death. And you and I, you and I stand with Jesus in that inheritance of eternal life. And that's worth beholding forever, isn't it church? 
Let's pray. God, there is no words. We find ourselves at the end of our vocabulary when we think about beholding you. It's why you've given us song because eventually we need to cry out and just be reminded of your goodness and your majesty and your great love for us. And God, there, there are some of us in this morning where, uh, here this morning where our hearts feel really hard and I just ask that you would draw near to them, that they would take refuge in you, that you would soften their hearts, that your spirit would move in them in a powerful and a mighty way where they would be able to behold your goodness, where they would be able to taste and see just how satisfying you truly are, God. God, we know that you are near. You are here with us right now. And the work that we are doing in this moment is sacred and holy because you are transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. So God, allow us to turn away from our sins and to choose you instead, knowing that that's what our souls crave and that's where we will find living water and joy and satisfaction. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.